morning. Before I started, I wanted to at least take a minute and re-emphasize what Tommy just shared at the end. And I trust that was a blessing to you. It was no small thing. Understanding that in the life of God, partnering with that gets us to the destination so much faster. And I, I was reminded, I had this conversation with somebody I've known for a number of years. And this person was commenting to me, we're just talking about the things of God. And this person just felt so blessed and almost as if somehow it was unfair that revelation and the goodness of God was being impressed upon her. And, and she was just considering the reality that out of all the people that she kind of knew, it, she felt in some sense that she was singularly like set apart and was just so blessed by what he was revealing to her. And I, my comment to her, and that certainly was true, but my comment to her at the time was that where she was at that current point in time, just experiencing the goodness of God and understanding intimacy and relationship, I said that was not anything that was in a vacuum. And I, I explained to her that to understand how she was at this point in time and feeling the life of God in her and revelation, I said there was a whole series of questions that she had answered in the past of saying yes to. God saying to her, just as a call and as an invitation, and she had to say yes many times along the way, and sometimes seemingly imperceptible, not significant, but still as an answer of affirmative that she had to make. And, and what Tommy shared is, in a sense, a picture of that, that we oftentimes think of this walk and faith as being something that is so dramatic, and there are certainly big moments and big decisions, but oftentimes getting to those points, there's a series of yeses that we get we have a choice of how we answer to that as an invitation of God who is always beckoning us to come away with him, to be with him, him and him alone. And I just wanted, to, I could not leave that alone because what Tommy shared was such a significant and yet such a practical insight into how we actually deal with this thing called the normal Christian life. And every day we face imperceptibly small choices of how we view him, how we partner with him, how we get to be with him. And I just want to encourage you on that, that just even setting your mind to set aside a time just to reflect upon him is a choice. It is a choice of cooperating with the spirit of God in revelation versus what the world would have us turn away to as a distraction. Small, imperceptible choices, but they lead on and on again as we partner in the life of God, in the river of God. And you find you get to a place and a destination that, quite frankly, you will remark and say, how did I get here? Those are built on imperceptibly small choices. So 
I, I had to emphasize, thank you, Tommy. That was fantastic to share. So that wasn't anything of what I was going to share on, but it does lead a little bit into where we are as a church. And Clayton, who is not here, Clayton and Jen are on a three-week vacation, and I trust they're truly vacationing, but they aren't here. So, but what Clayton did before, it's, it's pretty funny. It's totally in the nature of Clayton. He kind of comes and he just kind of throws everything up in the air and says, okay, I'm going to leave now. But he started a series, which he will get back to, I'm sure of that, about possessing the land. And it is a very broad topic, which I'm not going to get into really in depth, but it does lead to a specific topic that I, won't, I will get into, which is the title of my sermon, which I'm not going to tell you just yet. But possessing the land, and I'm just quoting some of the things that he said two weeks ago. And it was in the context of the Old Testament Israelites, and there's something prophetic as it is a shadow of what is to come for us in the New Testament church. And the promises of God here on earth can represent the promised land, individually, corporately, on many different levels. And he said something that some people might have just like, well, that's an interesting thought. That seems a little bit controversial. And he said, because as a church, and if you know anything of Clayton and Ken, you know that the notion of revival runs so deep, is so something of a passion of them, but yet Clayton said this. He says, the point is not revival in and of itself. It's not an exact quote, I'm paraphrasing. But ultimately, the point of revival, as he said, is to impact the world. For people to be revived, as he said, you know, somehow you were vived before, but now you are revived. And out of that revival, there's an impact on the world. And if you have been paying attention at all in this world, you know that the, the increasing number of problems that are appearing on the horizon are probably multiplying faster than the solutions are appearing. It just is what it is. And we're called to bring practical solutions to problems. You may or may not feel like you're part of the solution. I hope you do. And I hope by the end, you absolutely believe that you are a part of that solution. And we, another thing Clayton says, we must have victory at every level. It's a pretty tall order, and we yearn for revival, but to be revived to actually impact the world. And what is difficult with church, and this is not casting any criticism anybody other than just pointing to the reality of people's experience with the church, that oftentimes church and what you hear in church is all about here, inside the four walls of this building, which we know, I mean, you know, you are the church. This is just a building. But oftentimes, and it's very easy to slip down the slope of the focus becomes primarily about what happens here. Not that it's poor intentions, or it's just one of the things that we always have to guard against. And so I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 5. This third is going to appear on the back. This is talking what Jesus said. It says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And may he be glorified. 
by good works, which we'll get to. But I chose this to, as a start because we are focused certainly by what happens here in the local church. But the call is very clear. At the highest of levels, it is very clear that we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And what is expressed in this very short passage are three distinct different areas of influence, spheres, if you will. One of the, the entire earth or the entire world, and then it talks about a city. And then it drills down even further and talks about a house. And these represent, in a sense, if you think of the church, represents three spheres of impact that we should never, in a sense, negate. The church universal is to bring transformation to the entire world. The local church can bring transformation to a city, and you can bring transformation and light and blessing into your house. And if I were to actually say, in the context of warfare, because we are in a war, sometimes taking the city involves house-to-house -house warfare. That as you house-by-house house transform and take over from the perspective of the kingdom of light, you start to transform a city. So we have the whole earth that is, by definition, God's ultimate intention. We have a level called the city, which our church is, we're trusting for God for impact, but we also have individual homes for which you will play a role. These are just three different spheres of influence. And if your vision, and I trust it is, is beyond the four walls of this building, then you have to appreciate that we need the entire body of Christ. Yeah. The entire body of Christ. So Clayton started and talking about possessing the land, and I'm going to start there as well. One of my favorite verses talking about possessing the land is in Exodus 23. And it's going to come up. And this is part of the process of how you actually go about this in taking the land. It says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. That's God's process. And dare I say, not probably one that we would subscribe to or say that's the process we want. Little by little is the exact opposite of most of the mentality of you think of any level of development, personal development, corporate development, whatever. Little by little is not necessarily the mantra. Most you would probably endeavor to hear is that if you do this, if you follow this program, you're going to achieve this results shorter than the time that it took for the one who pioneered that type of process. That's not what God says. There is a process, and it is little by little, and I didn't say what little meant, but it's incremental. You see, the conquest of Canaan, which was the promised land, represented that of what God said, this is the land promised to Abraham, and the Israelites' responsibility was to go and now take it. It was, not, it was gradual, it was not sudden. There was a start, to be sure, and dramatic, certainly, but it was a process. 
Israel needed time to grow as a nation sufficiently strong to dispossess the inhabitants and to govern the conquered land. They had to increase in strength, and you can understand that that's a process. And this is true for us individually as well as corporately. And it required, as I said, it requires a nation. It was the nation of Israel collectively increasing in capacity so that they could dispossess and then govern. See, the governing part is much more difficult than we'd like to admit that it is. We like breakthrough, but then you actually have to walk in areas of breakthrough and now steward over it, acquire it, and govern. That's sometimes a lot tougher. And I'm just trying to be real with you with some of the pitfalls that it's easy to take away. It's not necessarily said, but it could be an unfortunate consequence of some of the language that we use in church because we are certainly focused on what goes on here. We're called to steward what happens in, in this morning, as an example. But if undue emphasis is given to what happens here versus all the spheres that I spoke about previously, the natural result is going to be that's undue burden and reliance on the pastors and the ministry leaders. The people that you deem to be qualified and responsible for what happens ministry-wise here. That's an unfortunate consequence of having an undue focus simply within these four walls. And as soon as you break outside of these four walls and you realize, well, Clayton can't be everywhere at one time, although he tries, and he does a pretty good job at it, but now he's on vacation. So that in and of itself should lead us to alternatives. And it's not just Tommy, by the way, as much as I love Tommy. So, little by little, absolutely, we, there is a process that we go through. But the other word that he talks about increase in Exodus 23. And that word increase is simply fruitful. And one of the first mentions of that word fruitful was in Genesis 1, 27, just speaking of what God spoke over mankind, which at that point, no sin had entered. So this is his ultimate vision of the responsibility put on man. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful. That's that word, increase. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. It's increase. It's a fruitfulness aspect of that. But ultimately, it's to subdue and govern, which is what Exodus 23 was talking about. So that's what I'm going to talk about to you today is fruitfulness. Not on the church universal, not on the local church perspective, but on an individual scale. Clayton, I'm sure, will talk about it more from a corporate perspective, but I'm here to talk about you, me, individuals. So the title now, I can tell you of what this sermon is about, and it's, the title is Holy Calling. That's my title. So, I'm sure most of you here are saved. That, that would be a good guess. And if you're saved, you're called. 
whether you realize it or not. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 9, but I have the last word of verse 8 in here. It says, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So as I said, if you're saved, you're called. And that word called actually speaks of an invitation. And invitations are interesting things because you get to accept or you get to decline. And you have a calling, which is an invitation. And the thing about this calling is, it says it's holy. And you understand what holy means. Holy is being set apart. We're called to be holy. But your calling is holy. And the consequence of this calling being labeled as holy is that it ought to be revered, to be respected, to be worthy of disciplined attention. And even more so, can I say, it is a responsibility. It's a holy calling. And this calling was before time began. And what that means, the implications of that are quite actually stunning because when you think of what is actually goes to the minds of many people of many ages, you know, there's not quite an esteem. There, there's problems with self-esteem. There's problems with identity. And all of those are consequences of actually not being able to answer this question is why am I here and what is my purpose? And yet, this holy calling, which, which is spoken of, was before time began. Which means that God knew the specific divine plan and purpose for your life. And it's part of a tremendous plan. And if I can also say that if all of that is true, then you can never be truly satisfied until you are operating in your calling. And I trust you're satisfied or in the process of fulfilling it. And I know, because we get these questions oftentimes, the question is, where's my place? And it's very important to know the area in which we are called, and I'm hoping to give you some understanding of that, of how to fulfill this holy calling, which is set in motion before time began. But critically, and I'm, I'm gonna take a little bit of time to make sure that you hear this part, because this colors everything else that I'm going to say in, this, in the second part of what I'm talking about. It's according to his own purpose and grace. Purpose I already spoke about, but it's according to his purpose and grace. And by definition, you all as recipients of grace know one thing, that grace was something that you could not do and somebody had to do for you, which is what salvation is the basis of, grace. But in the context of your calling, it is similarly according to his purpose and grace, which means that it's beyond your own natural ability. 
It is going to be very easy for you to hear a lot of things that I talk about and think that I'm talking about effort, natural doggedness, and there is an element of that, but it is always in the end by his grace. And that's why I want to make sure you understand that this particular phrase is coloring everything I'm telling you. It's by his grace. It is beyond your natural ability. Grace begins where your human ability in the flesh ends. And that is where God wants you to be. And I'm sure the Spirit of God is beginning to speaking to you and reminding you of some of those verses that you know have memorized about your dependence on his strength, not your own. See, God tends to put us in a position for which we are not qualified. Well, that doesn't seem quite fair, does it? And it's not the Peter principle at work that you're getting promoted to your level of incompetence. That's the world. You see, your holy calling is dependent upon you coming to a place that is beyond yourself, the end of your natural ability, and yet now it is according to his purpose and his grace. And the interesting thing about your calling is this, because these are questions that people have asked me, I've asked myself, and I'm still trying to answer this, although I have a very strong opinion about it. It says, do you find your calling or does your calling find you? My very strong opinion on this is that both by experience but also by the word of God is you don't find your calling. Your calling finds you. What is my evidence that I, I'll just give you one? Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So as many plans as you have about your future, about your career, about your family, yeah, that's you. You can plan that, but the Lord will direct your steps. And the Lord can cause your steps to go into areas that you never thought you would go, but then you find yourself assuming that you've said yes to all the questions along the way and invitations, and you look around and say, how did I get here? That's God. And it's not about you identifying, well, this is just what I'm good at, so I'm going to do this. Well, there's an element of that. I said, but if you really understand grace, you understand you've gotten to a place that you could not have accomplished on your own by definition. So, all that was to say that you are called by God and that calling is holy. And it is a responsibility. Speaking of this calling, this calling is unique. It is unique. And this is one of the toughest things I believe personally for people to actually grab hold of. Why? I can look at some of the things in my life and say this is one of the hardest things for me to actually grab hold of. And I'll explain why. But... Speaking of your uniqueness, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and it says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And those good works, by the way, that's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 5, talking about salty the earth, light of the world. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that word workmanship that word in the Greek is poema. And that word is where we get the word poem from. 
somewhat of a transliteration. So what effectively saying when he talks about you, me, us being his workmanship, what we're basically saying that you are God's poem. That you, in effect, and this is why the, the Passion Translation will translate it as a masterpiece. That's why. Because you are literally a created masterpiece. And if you are somebody that's an aficionado of all things art, you would know that there's no such thing as a masterpiece and a duplicate masterpiece. There is a duplicate of a masterpiece, but it is not a masterpiece in and of itself. There can be only one. That's what defines a masterpiece. And you are that. You are God's poem, his work of art, his created masterpiece. And by definition, there is nobody like you. The implications of this are really hard. Let me just be very honest with you. Because if you know any, if you've walked in this world, if you've even walked in many churches for any length of time, we can quote all the stuff about the body of many parts, blah, 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 but the natural result of many people when they actually start to consider like their calling, it's like, well, but I can't do that. Exactly quoting 1 Corinthians 12, which is like, you know, because I'm not fill in the blank, I'm not a part of the body. You see, the, the notion of you being a created masterpiece is that you're an original. There is nobody like you. There's not going to be anybody like you to follow. I've I've, start, I've, I've read a number of books recently just to understand what the world says about things like persuasion and influence and leadership. And one of the gurus of leadership, this is what he said about speaking about leaders, and some of you may have heard this, but his name is Warren Bennis. And he said on, in this book on becoming a leader, he says, the manager is a copy. The leader is an original. The manager imitates the leader originates. This is a guru of leadership, basically quoting the Bible. That all of his experience, and I went, read one of his biographies, all of the experience that I could actually see when, when he was 20-some years old, of the experience that he had of an exact conversation of how that led him to produce some of his thoughts and thinking in his books years down the road. And it's right in the Bible. That the wisdom of the world is catching up to what's been in existence for thousands of years. And you have access to that. So the world, in a sense, is stumbling onto God's truth. And he literally stumbled upon it. So your call is unique. I want that to hang over you as something that you begin to work out in your mind. What are the implications of that? If I believe what the word of God says, that I, you, as we sit here, stand here, is God's poem, his work of art, this original work that he labels a masterpiece. And what are the implications of that? Because there are many. 
And you must be asking yourself now, don't feel like that. Not necessarily exhibiting that. Part of the process of you being formed into this masterpiece, it's called your life. And I already told you why I believe that your calling finds you, not the other way around. You have your plans, but the Lord directs your steps. And I know some of you will know exactly what I'm saying when I say some of the situations that you encountered, some of the events that happened to your life, you didn't choose. Good or bad. You didn't choose. Your choice was what to do when that event or that situation was right in front of you. There was a well-known professional golfer, I'm going to show my age, but he's, his name was Ben Hogan. And he had quite an experience because he actually had a problem. As a professional golfer, the one thing you want to know is where's my ball going when I hit it? And at the most inopportune times, he found that his ball would hook, which means he was a right-handed golfer, so it would violently go left when he didn't want it to. Which, you know, as the pressure mounts, you can imagine this is really not helpful to a professional golfer who's trying to make a living. So what did he do? He had to find a solution, and he literally dug it out of the dirt, literally. And this is what he said. I taught myself piece by piece. I'd go to bed and think about some part of my swing and get up in the middle of the night to check it in the mirror. The next day, I'd try it on the practice tee. If it worked, I'd keep it. If it didn't, I'd get rid of it. It took me a while, but I got hold of what was right for me. And the transformation of this professional golfer was so astounding, he labeled that he'd found the secret. So Golf Digest, I believe, Actually, no, it was Life Magazine offered him $10,000 if he would reveal his secret to them so they can print it in the magazine. So he accepted it, and he revealed the secret. Problem was, few understood it. And of those who actually did understand it, they couldn't do it. This, to me, is more illustrative than you think. You know, because if I think about ministry, and one of the things, the way the churches, I think, can inadvertently get, get it wrong by perception, is that what we love to do in this non-little-by-little mentality is we love the idea of a template. That, oh, you want to be counted for the kingdom, so, you know, you got to do this. You gotta learn this, you gotta have this teaching, you've got to go to this conference here, this speaker, because they can tell you how to do the stuff. And to be sure, you can be blessed and you can learn from that. But the problem is, what they've learned is so unique to them that even if you actually understood exactly what they were talking about, it probably wouldn't work for you. Why? Because they can bless you and they can impart knowledge to you, but they can't impart their history to you. And that fact is part of the reason why you as a masterpiece cannot impart who you are in the entirety to somebody who looks at your life and says, the victory I see in your life, can you, can you show me? 
And if you're like most normal people, your response was like, well, I mean, I, I kind of just do this. It's like, well, why do you, it's like, I'm not really sure why. It just kind of works the way I am. See, you have to understand that you as a created masterpiece, which is your life, how did that happen? Trials. Nobody wants trials. Most would want to do everything in their power to avoid trials. Trials are not good for you, except they are, if you believe the Bible, which I trust and I recommend that you do. You see, in James chapter 1, it says, My brother, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I, I think we should delete that verse. But I wouldn't recommend you try that either. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's really inconvenient. That somehow the trials I'm supposed to be excited about and somehow in the moment see the end which is the working of that process of working through the trial is actually for my benefit so I can be mature and complete lacking nothing in other words that if I don't go through this trial and work through this process I'm actually missing something in my life because you're now actually not lacking nothing you're actually lacking something That is frightful to me. As I tick back, I've had trials. I've overcome some. I probably say I didn't overcome some. And for the ones that were legitimate trials that I was to, to attend to, my inability to work through that trial in the way that God had for me meant that I today am missing something. That's a tough thought. But God is gracious. I said, that is the bedrock of everything I'm telling you. It is by his purpose and his grace. So the trials in your life are not only to be considered a source of joy to you, it is indispensable for you to actually, years down the road, months down the road, days down the road even, to actually find yourself in a place, as the word says, that I now lack nothing. Why? Why? I ask that question, and I hope you're asking yourself that question. Why? So, there is a well-known phrase in my line of work, which actually more generally, but I deal with intellectual property, and I deal with smart people, and they have inventions and innovations. And quite frankly, a lot of them are not all that. I would say as a general rule, 90-some percent of the very smart people that I've talked to over the years, they're really not that impressed with themselves. They've invented some stuff, really great technology, and I talk to them, and they're like, yeah, anybody could have done that. They're wholly unimpressed with themselves. And you've heard this phrase, Necessity is the mother of invention. I have seen that play out again and again and again. 
what was considered innovation, what was considered invention. It's like, well, I mean, you know, we had this problem, so I came up with a solution to the problem. As in, one plus one equals two. And therein lies the reason why trials are essential and should be embraced and is a source of joy so that you lack nothing. The reason why you come up with solutions in your personal life in victory is because of the problems that you have. And when I say that the Lord directs your steps, I'm saying, look, if, if you're just offended by that, you just got to go to God on that one. But trials enter your life. It's like, I don't want trials. So I say, but it's good for you. Trust me. You don't get to pick the trials. All you know is that trials are brought to you, and the only choice you have is do you attend to it? And the degree to which you attend to it enables you to actually discover invention, innovation for your life. So that years down the road, you can say, I actually lack nothing in that area. You wouldn't have broken through and achieved a victory had that trial not appeared in your life. And as I said, you didn't get to pick. You know, Luke chapter 11 says this, and I, I think this is one of the aspects of you in that process of becoming God's poem of how it transpires in the day to day. Luke chapter 11, verse 5, and he said to them, speaking of prayer and persistence, and he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. The whole reason of persistence in going, what is a picture of going to the Father in prayer, is that a friend, a neighbor, came to him and he had nothing to set before him. So he goes to the Father and says, or to the friend, and says, I need bread. Because I have nothing to give to my friend in need. There are some of you, because of situations and trials and problems that you've encountered in life, it's exactly that scenario, that you've had to go to God, because by definition, it's beyond you now. And there are situations that have entered into your life, trials, where there are people that have come to you and you have nothing to set before them. And who is your neighbor? Of course you know this. On the one that would have mercy upon them. That's your neighbor. And you have nothing to give. So you go to the one who has. It's a legitimate question for you to ask yourself because we're all in this process and it's called becoming God's masterpiece. And one of the answers of exactly what masterpiece is being, is being formed is what are the problems in your doorstep? Literally. Neighbors, family, you. 
I appreciate this quote because, and that's why I said, just understand, it's all on the foundation of grace. This is from a quote from Linus Torvalds. He's actually one of the main developers of the Linux operating system. He's talking about innovation because you have to innovate yourself. And he says, anybody can innovate. Don't do this big, think different, screw that, it's meaningless. 99% of it is get the work done. Torvald said he subscribes to the view that successful projects are 99% perspiration and 1% innovation. I believe that. Necessity is the mother of an invention. Oftentimes you identify and coming to a, finding the solution for the problems that are in your life called trials does relate to some doggedness, but ultimately it's based upon grace. And the implications of what I'm saying is that if God is directing your steps and the trial is his means to actually create in you maturity and completeness lacking nothing, then would he give to you the bread that you so desperately need in that situation? If you ask, yes, I believe that. See, the role of trials in your life, I, I had to come up with some language for myself. And to understand trials, there's three phrases. Trials, first of all, trials incline you. What do I mean by that? The appearance of a trial in your life has now brought your attention so that you attend to it, and it's a choice. Fight or flight, it's just that simple. Trials incline you. You wouldn't otherwise actually attend to it had it not appeared on your doorstep. Trials refine you. The process of actually working through a trial, Romans chapter five talks about perseverance, produces character and character hope all conditioned on suffering, which is a trial in your life. That level of perseverance is a refining process. And in the context of what we're talking about today, in terms of you, God's poem, and God's masterpiece, it ultimately defines you. Trials define you. And we know all the language, by the way. People talk about, you know, your victories are now the source of your ministry. True. It's a little bit bigger than that. Yes, it's true, but this is your life and this is your calling. And that calling demands, because it's holy, your attention. Now, lastly, your call requires you to embrace your uniqueness. And this one, yeah. It's a caricature. See, the thing about character is that, you know, if you were to have a character, I wish I had one drawn of me, so we could all laugh at me. But characters are funny things because we kind of like them, and yet if we really are honest about our own caricature of ourselves, it's like, yeah, it doesn't really make me comfortable. Because it's pointing out something that I actually would love to be more normalized big nose, big forehead, you know, I don't, I don't really like that to be accentuated. 
But the reason why a character to me is useful to understand the difficulty of embracing your uniqueness is oftentimes a character represents how you are by the way God sees you. God doesn't see you in a way that is just like everybody else, indistinguishable. He put specific gifts in you, motivational gifts, Romans chapter 12. He put in spiritual gifts in you, 1 Corinthians 12. And he gave you this process called trials by which you would develop in a certain way and he directed you along the way in every step and you always had an opportunity and a freedom to say yes. And the result of this entire process is now you're becoming the masterpiece that I'd envisioned before time began. And like some of the very smart inventors that I talked to, we are wholly unimpressed with ourselves. Some of the things that we find that we actually do really well, it's like, yeah, anybody can do that. If you actually said to yourself that, I almost guarantee you that is actually part of you, who you actually are. And to embrace some of the oddness of who we are is more difficult than you think. Because oftentimes, our response in terms of what we would like to be is, well, because I'm not this, I'm not part of the body. You see, why is it so critical that you embrace your uniqueness? And there's such an attack right now against individuality. I'm not gonna use the word, but I'll use the shorthand for the word, group identity. By race, by whatever you want to use as your group, that's an oxymoron. A group identity is not an identity. An identity is so individual, it's unique to you. And a group cannot define that. You embracing your uniqueness, this is why. I'll just read something to you. Embracing that uniqueness of who you are goes a long way to acknowledging that you may be the answer for the problem that's about to arrive. And I'm trusting to raise your vision of what is possible in embracing what you think is actually fairly unremarkable, at least in compared to the things that you would love to be able to do when you see others. But there are problems that are about to arrive. Some of them have already arrived and on your doorstep. And you embracing your uniqueness is acknowledging that you could very well be the answer to those problems. And we need all the answers as the body of Christ. Just to close, Many of you are looking to find your place in the church, quote unquote, church. You are the church. This is a vehicle to help, to minister, to be sure, within these four walls, but you are the church. And the solutions that are being demanded out there, outside of these four walls, are multiplying much faster than solutions are arriving and you are one of those solutions. And when you find the right place, 
you will find the faith needed to perform that function. You just have to trust in his grace upon that. It is by his design. The notion of you having a holy calling and being God's poem and his masterpiece is conditioned upon one central thought. It's his design. You are his design. I'm trusting that you'll hear him by his spirit confirming that for you. For me to say anything else would be contrary to the word of God. You are his masterpiece. And if you're asking yourself, now what? We're all in very different stages of life. I acknowledge that. Some of you are just in a process. Some of you are in trials right now. Some of you have stacked numbers of trials right in front of you. God's doing something in you. I wish I could be, have something better to say for you on that, but God's doing something in you, for you. Some of you may be in a place where you just don't know what your place is, don't know where you should go, don't know even what you should do. So let me make that, this one simple piece of advice for you. And if you want something to pray, this is what I would pray. God, you show me. You show me what to do. And the specific answer to that prayer is problems arriving on your doorstep. That's a weird prayer to ask. I get that. I'm not asking for trials, that's not the point. But if you're his unique work of art that's specifically designed to produce a solution for problems that may not yet have arrived, the arrival of that problem is destined for you. And that's part of finding your place, is to understand that who you are in your uniqueness is actually a solution to problems. And if you're open to it, God will send you people to help. And we have to break this model of this ministry mindset. Of what you think leader, ministry leaders to do, even pastors. I can say this in 100% honesty and integrity. You can reach people I will never reach. Either because of proximity, either because of capacity, or even ability, period. You can reach people. I have no opportunity and no ability to actually help. You are the answer. And if you're open to it, God will send them to you. And it's just an invitation that you get to say yes to along the way. And that, I believe, is how we find our place, by just fulfilling what naturally he has for you in our everyday life outside these walls, and you being the church. Amen. May we stand. Let's just pray for you.
God is good, is he not? Lord God, I thank you. I just thank you. I thank you for your plans. I thank you for purposes. I thank you for the unique vision you have for your people individually. Whether known or not, I just affirm your love, your concern, your intercession in the smallest of details in all of your lives, all the lives of your people. And I just bless them right now. I just bless them which is a freedom to worship you, to be intimate with you, to walk with you. I thank you, Lord, for you are good. Amen. Amen. Here we go. I trust that you were blessed and that you will continue to be blessed and that you were challenged. This man is, is good with those the challenges. There will be a ministry team over here in the corner to, ready to pray uh, for you um, for anything and everything that you would like. Visitors, thank you again for being with us today. You blessed us by being here. And uh, have a wonderful week. We will see you. Be blessed. Good morning, Free Life Church. We are glad you've joined us today. If you are visiting in person, please stop by the Connection Corner in the lobby to receive your welcome bag and learn more about Free Life Church. A member from our Connection team will be there to answer any questions you have. We look forward to meeting you. Are you interested in knowing more about Free Life Church? Sign up for our Discovery class coming up next month where you'll learn more about us, our purpose, and find ways to connect, whether it's for a season or a lifetime. If you are new to FLC, Discovery is for you. Registration is now open. If you would like to be baptized in water, please sign up for our next baptisms happening on September 12th at 2 p.m. after church at the home of Josh and Rachel Deneen. Our next encounter night is on Saturday, September 11th from 6.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. This evening is dedicated to going deeper into praise, prayer, and prophecy. Free Life Church has an app. Keep up with the latest sermons and events, find ways to connect, and have an easy way to give. Available for Android or Apple devices at the respective app stores, or text FLC app to 41400 for a link to download. For more information about all of our upcoming events, please see the events page on our website. Thanks for tuning in.